From the Saddle is brought to you by Hewitt Consulting and Communications. Specialising in rural business and marketing design, find them on Facebook and Instagram. From the I just need to take five and just go away and recover. <laughs> Not even high pressure, I don't know the word to describe it. <laughs> From the Saddle. I'm Caitlin Hewitt and this is From the Saddle. Life is about the journey, the experiences that lead us to the destinations. 20 years ago, John Templeton ran his finger through a list of names and numbers and picked one. Completely oblivious to who he was calling, he was determined to start his career by getting a job training horses. A humble and down-to-earth vibe, John and Caitlin get pretty real about life as a horse trainer. The lifestyle, juggling a family, and what momentarily took the passion and enjoyment out of his career. We are now proud to have John Templeton's name listed as a guest on our playlist. Almost as good as that time he was listed in the credits as Hugh Jackman's riding double in the Baz Luhrmann movie, Australia. From the saddle. From the saddle. Good morning, John. Thank you very much for joining us here at From the Saddle podcast. I know there are a lot of listeners that are keen to hear your story and I do thank you for your time. John, I've got to be honest, it's been a long time coming. It's been hard work to get you onto this episode. Oh, thanks for having me. Oh, well, (laughs) hopefully it's worth it. Absolutely. Now, John, you grew up in the Territory on a station, mate. Let's talk about your childhood and basically what ignited the flame into horses and and the passion that you have for it? Oh, well, I guess, you know, mum and dad managed cattle stations in the Territory and so horses were just a way of life. You know, like we used choppers, but, you know, choppers would put the cattle together and would get on the horses and and walk the cattle back to yards or back out to the paddocks. And so that was just an everyday life. So I grew up just horses being an everyday event, I suppose. And, you know, mum and dad were they're into their camp drafting, they love their horses, and so that was our our social outlet. Yeah, you know, we'd do no, we wouldn't do many drafts a year. We might do probably five or six drafts a year, but um it was always a highlight for us. So it was it was uh, it was work and play, really. It's funny, often kids that grow up, you know, riding horses, competing on weekends, it can often deter them and they they may often find themselves never on a horse again. But you've done the opposite. Yeah, I think it was just a, a bug that I had. Um, I always enjoyed horses, and I, I really can't tell you what it was in the early days. You know what really sort of ignited my interest. But it was just something I enjoyed about the horses. You know, like um, they're just an extension of you, and you. I don't know you. Could, it's um, <laughs> beats walking. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, it beats walking. So. Was there a particular day that it clicked for you that you thought, I want to know more about this and, and I want to explore this a bit more? Um, I was, it probably wasn't until I was probably coming to the end of high school that uh, my parents organised me to go and spend some time with uh, my cousin, Steve Hart. He was a, a horse breaker slash trainer uh, based in Catherine. And um, so I spent uh, a wet season or a summer uh, in there with him working with horses and um, that probably uh, while we I guess enjoyed the drafting that probably switched a bit of a light on as to there being more uh, to to uh, just than just riding horses and, and chasing cattle around I mean we mum and dad they used to organize clinics you know so for trainers to 
or horsemen to come up and do do a you know a week long clinic. It was usually breaking in and you know a couple of days of horsemanship. Yeah, you know, so we always did that every year. But I guess when you're probably younger, you just probably just enjoying the to do enjoying something different, I suppose. So um, yeah, it wasn't until I was probably in my late teens that I probably started to click that. There was um, more to enjoy with, uh, with with knowledge. So looking back, John, the methods that, you know, you were exposed to in those, throughout those clinics, do you use them to this day or like have you taken from them or do you look back and think that was mad? Um, I think probably I've learned things uh, since then that take me back to that point and you kind of just like, sort of go, oh, now I know what they're talking uh, about. Yeah, okay, yep, yeah. yep. It was stuff that you didn't understand, but you kind of just, it was there shelved in your mind. Yeah. So did you finish school or did you kind of just go, school's not for me? I did school because I, I had to. Um, I did finish year 12. But yeah, I was, I was, I was pretty keen just to um, get back to life on the land and make a start and make a living, I suppose. So how did that start come about? Oh, well, I just, well, you know, initially... I thought that my life was just going to be what Dad's was, and uh, and that was just working on stations and with cattle and and the horses and um, you know, I just I did twelve months on the same place that Mum and Dad ran, and um, and then after that I took a job with um, Stanbroke. Actually, it was, it was that was after we moved to Queensland. So Mum and Dad finished up in the territory uh, when I finished school, or a year after I finished school and moved to Queensland, and I I did spend twelve months uh, fencing. I'm fencing with dad, and that that really reinforced that I didn't want to be doing that side of things. But <laughs> um, so I just took work with with Stanbroke, and I just figured in my mind at that time that I was just going to basically work my way up to sort of a manager's position, and and that's where I thought that my life was going to um, to lead. Uh, I probably, you know, in hindsight, you know, looking back, I probably only did it so I could have my horses and have have the. Um, the life that involved horses and cattle. Um, I didn't realise probably that um, I could make a life purely out of horses. So what made you realise you could do that? Um, well, that was just something that evolved. So I, when I first, I uh, guess, well, when I took a job with Ian, I didn't actually realise that there was anyone making a living from training horses other than breaking in. So that side of life... Uh, or that that world I, I hadn't uh, been exposed to, so I actually was told that I should maybe pursue you know a career in horses by some friends that I was working with, and they said that uh, there was some trainers in the south, and so they must have been a friend that told me about some magazines that I could find some trainers uh, names and contacts in. So I I actually just went to the news agency in Alpha and uh, just basically looked through the magazines and found a bit of a, a phone directory in the back of them. And um, I didn't know anyone that was in there, so I just basically picked one out. And it just happened to be in. So it was pretty random. I wasn't going on a lot of information. It was just something I was just sort of trying to um, explore a bit. Ian Francis? Yeah. So you picked up the phone? Yeah, so I, <laughs> uh, I picked up, I, I rang Ian and initially he said that uh, he didn't have any room. He had a couple of fellows that were already there doing some work for him, and um, and he said, "Give me a ring back, you know, some other time." So I gave it two weeks, and I rang back again, 
And he said he still didn't have anything. And um, and so I waited another two weeks and rang him again. And I think Ian probably just realised I wasn't going to go away. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and most people would have probably just tried one of the other numbers, but I just figured this is the number I've got. So I'll just keep keep trying this one. And um, and eventually he just gave in and just and just said, "Oh look, these guys are, are going to finish up soon, so you might as well come down and, and you can make a start." And um, and that was it. That was it. So I quit my job and and or put me notice in and um, and headed him down and and um, and started from there. So at this point, you like when you were playing phone tag with Ian Francis, you had no idea the capability and the stature that he he held, and had none. he no. had none. No, and I didn't realise that what he, what his background and that uh, as versatile as Ian's training is and what he's done would suit me best. Like I could have gone and worked with just, you know, other, other trainers that were just yeah. purely cutting horse trainers and I would have been probably more one dimensional. It wouldn't have suited me in my background quite as well. Yeah. So I was, I was quite lucky in that respect. So what happens when you, you landed Ian Francis's? Um, I just, made a start you know I, I didn't know how anything was supposed to work I didn't have any preconceived ideas I just basically just made it made a start and and um and so I Ian got me started on breaking some horses in and that was my role and so I was kind of just the um the guy there and Matt Barber was working there at the same time and so we both you now we're doing the, the breakers and, and um and as time went on um you know someone would ring up and, and want to a challenge horse trained and I didn't know really, you know, too much about what I needed to do other than what Ian was sort of, you know, showing me. And so it was more about just sucking and seeing really, you know, I was mm. just basically having a go. The reason what probably uh, took my interest with the challenging rather than cutting because I could have gone because Ian was just riding cutting horses at the time. So I guess I went with the challenge horses because that was probably the closest thing that I could see that fitted my background as someone that drafted, and that uh, and that's what my interest was. And so I thought, oh, geez, if I could make a living out of uh, challenge horses, well, then that's kind of you know as close as I can make it. And at that time, people weren't really getting horses put in training just to be trained for camp camp draft horses. That really wasn't too common um it was more if, if a horse ever got trained it was to challenge and then i guess people took them on after that and drafted them but it was um it wasn't it wasn't what it was what it is today so how long were you with ian francis for um i didn't work for ian directly that long it was only probably seven or eight months and he offered me to um yeah, I was pretty keen to make some money. I, I got on the calculator and added up some figures. I thought, oh, this is some good money to make. It was be- beating a wage. So I was probably pretty keen to sort of make a start for myself. And he offered me to work from uh, his stables um, because I didn't have anywhere to train from. And so I thought that was a good idea. I could still have Ian, Ian's knowledge there to help me along and, um, and also to pass horses along because I didn't have any name or reputation to go on at the time. And then I probably spent 18 months at Ian's. And um, and then it just progressed from there, and then um, met Tash, my wife, and she had a block at Kingaroy that we um, once we sort of you know got engaged and got together, we we decided that we were going to um, to build an arena and some horse pens and and, there, and and make a start over there where she was. 
So it was just a, a move from Ian's to there, and that's where I was for the next 15-odd years. So looking back, how old were you when you went to Ian? Yeah, I was, probably, I was, I was mid-20s, I think. I think I was probably, I think I was 24. And the money back then to do what you were doing compared to now? Um, it was probably relevant, but it was, um, I think it was $250 a week that, that you build out to, to train a horse. It was, uh, and that was, and that was probably seven days a week. Is that for one horse? Yeah. Yeah. That was per horse. Yeah. So you'd probably, uh, breakers, I'd sort of ride about 12, 13 horses a day. And, um, and that was probably, that probably kept me busy enough because I guess the breakers, they sort of, you know, they take up a bit more time. Yeah, you know, per horse and what, you know, say a horse, you know, that you ride just training on cattle. And, and that was the majority of my horses. It was all a minimum of six weeks that we took horses for. And, and, um, a lot of them were just, you know, horses to break in. I took in any, and any, and any that wanted to walk through the door, I was happy to take because, um, there wasn't a very big pool of horses there being offered to me. So I was just happy to, to try and keep my, my 12 horse quota there. So I rode, I rode Arabs and, Persians and anything, anything to walk through there with four legs, I was happy to take. Like you said, breakers take a bit more time. Did you think, oh, I'm not getting paid enough for this? I think um, I just had an interest to to, um, to ride horses and train horses for competition. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I enjoyed you know, pro- progressing horses and just seeing how how good can we make this horse? And uh, and I was trying to develop my skills uh, at the same time. And so it was kind of uh, a lot of practice, you know, developing your skill or your craft, you know, in the, in the meantime. So you, you don't probably have the skills that you have today back then, obviously, because um, it takes a long time to develop your, your feel and your timing and people can explain things to you, but it's very much murky water until you just sort of get further into it where it sort of starts to clear up in your mind and you can kind of understand it better. And the bad horses help you get there too? The bad horses, the, the ones that make you work for a teacher the most or taught me the most, They um, because they never, they never just gave it to you. They never filled in the gaps for you. So if you didn't do it right, you didn't get what you're what you were trying to you know, achieve. Yeah. Whereas when you ride a better horse, the better horses, they do it, there's a bit of a saying, you know, the good horses are good despite you, not because of you. You know, and so regardless whether you're doing the right thing or not, they're still going to be good um, because they just want to be and they've got the natural talent. Whereas uh, the lesser horses, well, yeah, they need a lot more help and, and they're not as, you know, gifted and so therefore, you know, they're not going to do it the way you want it quite as easy. But that did t- teach me more than what, yeah, the good ones. The good ones taught me what I should be trying to get what did you get more satisfaction out of? It's funny, like when I when I started to get success and gain success in, in in competition, it was probably a relief, if anything, because if I was to do it again, I would have stayed with Ian for longer, and I I would have developed my skills alongside him before I stepped out on my own. I was probably in a bit of a rush to get out on my own and make some money for myself, so therefore I left with not as much knowledge as I would have liked. So, yeah, when I started gaining success, it was a relief that I, I hadn't fasted up completely and that I was actually getting somewhere. You were mid-20s when you worked with Ian. Then you went out on your own. You mentioned you met Tash and you, you started your own family and you started your own career. What age were you at this point? I might have been 27. Yep. 
there was a, there was a movie in there in between before just before we got married. Right. So let's talk about that. The movie that I guess everyone knows about. So the movie Australia, you were casted as Hugh Jackman's writing double. Yeah, correct. How did this come about? Through, I had a couple of horses that, that I had on my own uh, that I had down there with me and I was, I was looking to sell them. I just didn't have any time for them and I couldn't afford to, to be running my horses around you know, to draft and paying for it. Like I was, I was going to sell a couple of geldings and I was driving over to the Chinchilla horse sale. It was an unregistered sale. And um, I had a nominee though they were on their way and, and Bubsy actually ran I was going past his arena and, and um because we lived next door to, to um to Bubsy at King Roy there and uh, he ran out of the road and, and pulled me up and I was actually in the truck and I had the horses on and he said, Oh, you still got those horses for sale? And I said, Yeah, yeah. And he said, Well there's a there's a fellow coming around, he's he's looking for horses to buy for a movie. And he said it might be it might be a good way of selling these horses of yours. Anyway, so I thought fair enough. And it was actually that day, and um, so I pulled up, unloaded the horses at Bussy's Arena, and and um, Craig Emerton was the um, was the, the horse master on the movie, and um, and he 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 was a, a cutting horse trainer uh, initially, and so he was going through all these cutting horse trainers contacts you know to source horses for the movie and so that's how he ended up bringing Bubsy and anyway so we pulled up and Craig came around and I rode the horses around for him and he couldn't buy them on the spot so he had to video the horses and take them back to you know the production team and Baz and and uh, get the okay on them before he could you know sign a check or, or get a check for him and um and so I rode the horses around and um and so when they showed the horses to the production team, they saw me riding around and um, they said, oh, who's that and what's he doing and does he want his interest to come down and maybe, you know, try out for maybe a job. And um, and then, so that's how they found me and so they just invited me down and there was me and one other guy that they were looking at and so we we flew down to Sydney and, and uh, went to the, um, the studios there and well, they had a couple of horses there for us to ride around we rode around and then they said, oh, we'll let you know and so I flew home and... And um, and then about a week or two later, they said, "Oh, well, job's yours if you want it." And I thought, "Well, it's got to be um, some good money in it." So, I was, and it was, it was exciting. It was it was something pretty pretty different. Yeah, an experience. So I, so I took it, and and then yeah, I think we're on the movie for I think uh, four or five months do, um, filming, and we went up to Bowen for a few months up there and did all the Darwin scenes, and then um, and then we went over to Kununurra and did all the station scenes out there. So let's talk about that. What did a day on set look like? Oh, there's a term that they that they have on on movie sets, and it's called "hurry up and wait." So, <laughs> <laughs> so be ready, but be prepared to wait around like all day, every day. It's pretty slow. Yeah, um, you do this, and you do the same scene for weeks. Oh. And um, and I remember we filmed for like the first week and I turned to one of the uh, ADs, their, their assistant directors, and they usually have three or four of them and, you know, that work under Baz. And I said, how much film time do you think we made out of that? And he says, oh, probably a couple of minutes. Oh, so, shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so did you ever stuff it up? Um, well, they, they had it set up in such a way that, it was pretty hard to stuff up because they were short scenes and all you had to do was ride from A to B. And um, 
the horses are there. They, you know, they had a horse crew that keep the horses fit and legged up and tuned and and uh, doing what they needed to do. So um, I might have, but they didn't let me know. And we do when we were doing the scenes. You do it once, and then you go back and you do it again, and you do it again, and you do it again, and that might be starting to film from different angles or, mm-hmm. or whatever. But they 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 would film the same scene fifty times, so you wouldn't know whether you stuffed it up or not. So, did you have to sign anything going into this? Like you you couldn't disclose, you know, locations or yeah, information. There was a like yeah, there was a contract we signed, and so therefore, you know, yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah, there would have been a, um, a, a privacy clause there that we had to you know, keep it to ourselves. The experience in it all, did you mix with the best of them or were you segregated? Um, because they're, they're, they're pretty big crews. So you have you have your actors and then you have extras, which are just you know, people who just brought in from wherever and you know, just usually locals that they use you know, to have as background people and and so forth. Then you have your crew, and and then you have your you know all your support staff and that sort of thing. And so everyone just mixed. And so if everyone was and and because we we're filming uh, on location, it was just big camps. So um, the actors never stayed. That they um they kept them up in motels in town, and uh, and when we were in Bowen, I was in motels as well. But yeah, so um everyone mixed on on set, and then um. Usually you go to the go to the pub and have a beer afterwards, and everyone just sort of basically just let their hair down. Yeah, right. So did you rub shoulders and have a beer with Hugh Jackman? Or yeah, yeah. So um, so every morning we'd have to get up in costume and uh, and go to the makeup trailer and yeah, you know, get dressed up and get kitted up for what they wanted you to look at look for on the day. And um, and so my trailer, uh, there was Hugh Jackman. There were some other uh, sort of actors that had some smaller roles in it, and we just had the one trailer that we um, that we got ready in each morning. And sometimes Hugh would be there getting ready in that trailer, and other times he'd be in, he'd be somewhere else. And it just depending on you know what they were doing with him, because we were riding doubles, particularly up at Kununurra, they had two separate units. So they had um, first and second unit. First unit consisted of this is where we did split up a bit. First unit consisted of all the actors, and so they did all dialogue and some smaller scenes. And then when it came to the bigger scenes, where they you know might have needed us as as doubles because there was there was, there was a bunch of us. Well, we're on two different two separate uh, sets at Kununurra. But yeah, going back to sort of getting ready. So I mean, we didn't see Nicole much. Uh, you see her on set when she came in to do a small writing scene or something like that, but. Um, but yeah, we still we saw Hugh and and the, some of the other actors um, probably more frequently. Did you ever think I underestimated this experience? Um, no, because I mean, it, because it's so slow, you kind of get your head around it, and you kind of um, oh, it's pretty boring, really. Yeah. You know? Okay. Yeah, you, you're standing around a lot of the time. A lot of the time. Yeah. 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 I think I think people that like so the horse crew. Yeah, they were probably kept busier because they had a lot more work to do. Whereas the riding doubles, we just had to be in costume on set every day while filming was on, and whether we're needed or not. Yeah, you had and to be a lot ready of time to go. Not needed. Yeah, and suddenly when something's not working or they're going to, um, you know, they're trying a scene and and you know the, the actor's struggling or whatever, then one of us would jump in. Costumes, Kananara, was it hot? Stinking hot. Oh. And and anyone that's seen the movie 
may remember, you know, Hugh Jackman's outfit and uh, these clowns put him in leather pants. So they're brown leather pants. I mean, when I say leather, they were absolute leather. Like there was there was no breathing. <laughs> and um, and because Hugh was actually he was getting ready to do Wolverine straight after Australia, and um, and so he was working out, and he was huge. Yeah, you know, he was bloody an animal, really. If you looked at him, he was a wolf. And, um, and then you look at me, and I was like a twig. <laughs> and um, so they stuck this damn foam muscle suit on me. Uh, so I could be, you know, looking big, <laughs> big as him. And I cooked in this damn thing. Like I had leather on the bottom half of me. I had this foam seal on the top half of me. And uh, it was stinking hot. Oh, my God. Damn, it was stinking hot. Damn so, you, yeah, Jackman, I, I, for being I so buff. I looked for a tree to sit under. You you knew how the country worked out there. Well, yeah, 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 exactly. And um, so so going back to Kananar was like going home for me. So. The, the thing that really blew my mind was the detail in the sets they had. Like, there was nothing that you could probably point at and go, oh, you can see that that hasn't always been here. It, it was Im- immaculate, the set. Yeah, um, right. For, for whether it was a, you know, a depressed state or whether it was like, you know, looking a million dollars. Yeah, that was incredible what they were able to, to dress up and, and build on, on, on site. It's probably given you an insight to the level of work that goes into a production like that. Oh, yeah. When they talk about, you know, what, you know, their budgets were for the movies and that, you can absolutely believe it, just what's involved because, you know, it's not just, you know, the immediate filming crew. You know, it's all the trucks that bring haul all the gear and it's the armourers. It's bloody, it's all the support staff that they have to have on site because basically when they're filming, they... They have to have everything at their fingertips, whether they use it or not. So everyone's there. It's huge. But after doing a movie, I couldn't watch a movie without seeing yeah. the background. <laughs> like, you know, I kind of wrecked movies for me for a while yeah. because you couldn't help but to go, oh, well, I know everyone's standing around and you can just imagine you know, where the cameras are and the booms and yeah. and all the staff are sitting and you, just, yeah, you, um, you can't help but not to see it even though it's not in the um, screen. But that eventually fades. Tell me, John, the value of your horses, would they have increased going to Baz Luhrmann than going to your unregistered sale? Did you throw a few more dollars on them? Well, I did. <laughs> I did. I still wasn't rich from it, but um, but I got a good sale. Yeah, well, that's um, good. Yeah, but no, by no means. They weren't high-end horses and um, I think I sold one for eight months, ten, you know, whereas they probably would have sold for three or four. Yeah. Um, so it's not like I made a fortune out of it, but yeah, the the price was, was better. Win-win all round. You got a gig out of it and you made yeah, some money. Yeah, I got an experience and, um, yeah, look, I mean, it's it's good to look back at the photos and, and um, go, well, that was a you know, bizarre time in life, but um, something different. The memories are fun. Yeah, it, it sounds like it. From the saddle. Connected to rural communities and farming families, the team at Hewitt Consulting have a unique understanding and ever-growing portfolio of rural digital and marketing designs. The most reputable marketing and design business in rural Australia. And a few sneaky ones overseas. Logo designs, bull sale catalogues, marketing material, custom trucker caps and merchandise, horse adverts and a whole lot more. Caitlin and Robin understand that each project is as unique as the business it's for. Contact them today. 
www.hewittconsultingco.com.au. Find them on Facebook and Instagram. From the saddle. From the saddle. So, fast forward, wife and kids. You have three kids? Yeah, I do. Two boys and a girl. So I've got Gus, he's the eldest, and Charlie's the next one down, and, and Scarlett's the youngest. Now, I've got to admit, I knew you were married, but when you said you had three kids, I was taken back. <laughs> yeah, well, I, don't, I guess, you know, you know, showing horses, and particularly the horses we show, we, we always had young horses on the truck. And uh, so it was never really a place for little kids to be running around with, and we, we could never afford to have a nanny you know, they're with us or anyone and they're looking after the kids. So it just wasn't really sort of something that worked easily. And uh, and uh, back then in the earlier days, there wasn't such a thing as the restrictions that we have now. So we'd have a, you know, we, could, we can cart 12 horses on the goose deck and it would be full. Mm. We'd have challenge horses, we'd have some camp draft horses on the truck and, and uh, at least probably four stallions there. And they're all young. The challenge horses would be four-year-olds and, and the camp horses, well, they usually aren't really much older either. Mm. Yeah, so we um, we just kept them at home, and that's probably why Tash never really got out much either because, well, and some needed someone to sort of, you know, look after things at home, feed the horses and make sure nothing, you know, fell apart or broke its leg back there because I would, I'd be at the show and I'd have the, you know, the help that we did have, which did a strap up with me, so someone had to be at home. Yeah. It's not the easiest lifestyle, is it? No, look, it's um, it's something we were prepared to do because we had we had an agenda, I suppose. But um, yeah, look, I mean, if well, I don't think you see too many entrepreneurs doing it. Let's put it that way. Yeah, there's better ways. To, there's easier ways to make money. Yeah, you do it for the love and the passion, don't you? Yeah, yeah, that's what drives it. So, John, parenting throws curveballs every single day, but you and Tash were thrown, you know, a curveball with Gus, weren't you? Yeah, so Gus was born with a um, like a like a learning disability. He had he had multiple issues. So Gus has got a nystagmus, which is where the eye won't um, stay still. So it kind of bounces like a tennis ball, and he has what they call a null point. So he has a point there where he looks out to one side, and his eye will stay relatively still. Um, but then he had you know some comprehension issues. So you know if you speak to Gus, yeah, you know, you'd have to make sure that he understood and heard all of it and um so you know to, to broaden it you'd say a learning disability you know um so Gus always struggled you know he had a pretty rough childhood as a as a little fella because you know he had balance issues you know he'd fall over it you know I think he wasn't until he was two and a half or maybe more that he actually you know could walk but that was worse because when he started to walk he couldn't hold his balance and so if he started to lose his balance he would speed up Mm-hmm. To try and regain it, and so when he crashed, it was like the it, impact was more, yeah, hard. yeah, it was a lot, fair bit of blood, and uh, so that that in itself is is traumatic, and also you know there were some things that the um, pediatricians were suggesting that he may or may not have, and we wouldn't know until he's older, like you know bigger bigger disabilities in life, and and one that they talked about was was one that um, you know was degenerative. So we didn't know what the future held in mm. that regard, and so yeah, it was it was pretty. I would say it's cruel, really. Yeah. If you if you really sort of you know talk plainly about it, 
because um, you don't know what sort of life your kid is going to have as he grows older and, and uh, yeah, there's things that you can see and deal with, you know, at the time, but then there's the unknown to, you know, as he gets older. And, and, and look, Gus has done well as he's got older. He's, he's overcome a lot of things and he's continuing to overcome a lot of things, but then he's still, yeah, it's been it's been a hard road for probably everyone, including including him. Yeah. Kids are more resilient than they let on as well, and that I truly believe anyway. I think when, when kids are born with it, they don't know any different. I mean, yes, they, they have a hard time and they take a lot of knocks and um, they don't have a choice. So it's just get on with it. It is a, um, a credit to the kids that, that do have a disability like that or any, any other disability that they're born with, how they, how they cope with it. And then, you know, I guess they probably take a, a bit of a, a long-term toll on you as a parent and particularly mothers. You know, Tash, Tash really probably, um, you know, struggled because, you know, you never really, you know, she said something that sticks in my mind. You're only as happy as your saddest child. And when you see one of your kids having a hard time, it's hard to sort of, you know, rise above that. Yeah. It is hard because you'd do anything to take their pain away. Oh, you'd, say, you'd, you'd change anything. Anything that you have that's, you know, a, a privilege or a blessing in life, you would trade it in in a heartbeat to have a kid that, you know, didn't have his disability. It puts perspective in life, probably. You know, I did what probably a lot of folks would probably do is I, I buried myself in my work to a degree. Um, so, yeah, I had a bit of an escape like that. but. Um, but yeah, it always comes back to meet you when you get home. Yeah, and mums can't do that. Mums can't escape. No, they can't escape. No, no, they're dealing with it 24-7. You know, we just touched on how much um, the horses have taught you when you're breaking them in. It's, it's nothing compared to what children teach us. No, I think um, like horses, you can kind of understand psychology, you know, to a degree of, of how a horse wants to, wants to think. But uh, when you when you deal with something, when it comes to your kids, well, there's no compromise, is there? You know, in in how it affects you. So um, I don't know. It's it's either very very good or very very shit. Yeah, yeah. There's not often an in between, is there? Not really. Not generally. So you buried yourself in work. How old's Gus now? Uh, Gus is thirteen now. Okay. Yeah, so he started high school this year. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, he's doing good. He, he's actually in a, been probably one of the best places he's he's been to date with how he's getting on with life and he's achieving and he doesn't take as many knocks as he's as he used to. And but Gus is a hard one to read. You know, like you really kind of got to you know look in there hard to really know how he might be going because he's learned to just get on with it. But you don't know. You know, it's not until you see him really happy that you might start to get an inkling of, you know, how sad he might have been at one point. Oh, wow. So two other kids have come along. Like you said, you you could escape to work and that eventually led to some pretty serious burnout, didn't it? Yeah, like, I mean, we, Tash and I, we, 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 had, um, we had goals where we wanted to be able to get to a point at the end of my career where we had something other than having to get on a horse. So when my body was was stuffed, I didn't have to continue to get on them. And um, and so we we pushed into um, running cattle. 
and we had nothing. We oh, we had the we had the, the the little block that we started off with, and we we bought some blocks around it. Um, and then we you know adjusted where we could. And um, the thing about Kingaroy is it's a fairly it's a good area for for good country, but therefore it's quite landlocked. So. It, it's quite hard to break into country around there. Yeah. No, it's probably hard to break into country anywhere, really. At the moment, but, yeah. Um, yeah, and when, when you can't afford a lot, then, you know, you're fighting over the same blocks that the, the majority are fighting over as well. Um, it's not until you sort of start buying the bigger ones that you sort of you get less buyers. But, um, so yeah, so we we, um, we traded in cattle and, and bought and sold some blocks and, and we did really well out of buying and selling. But in the meantime, we had to make it, or sort of pay and work. So I found myself training horses and we, we used to grow oats as well to try to maximise, you know, because we were on a good country, try to maximise, you know, what we grew, what we bred to a heavy feeder and we, we tried anyway. And um, and so I found myself training horses and then getting on the tractor at night and farming some paddocks, you know, to get ready for oats or planting oats. And, um, and then on my weekends, basically, doing any cattle work and seeing sort of needed to be done. So it was just, I guess, there was no real reprieve. And then if you weren't at home on the weekends doing that, you were uh, at a horse show. Mm. So it was just it was just seven days a week and I don't know how many hours a day. And, look, you know, plenty of other people, you know, work long hours and so forth. But um, we did it as long as we could. And it just got to a point, I think, um, you know, say 18 months ago where I was cooked. Oh, and I'd probably been cooked. We both were because Tash was a midwife, and uh, and so she was working a job plus raising a family plus doing the books, and um, and you know we'd both just you know fall into bed at night, and that's kind of you know and then get up, drag yourself out of bed the next morning, and get get into it. So we pushed things to try and get ahead that we might have had a better future later on as we got older, and and uh, something that didn't rely purely on. Whether my ass was in the in the seat of a saddle or not, and that was cattle. That's what we knew. Well, that's the only other thing that we knew, um, other than our day to day jobs. So yeah, so we we pushed it for as long as we could, and and then, but you, no one can maintain that level of work or intensity forever because you're burning the candle at both ends. And so yeah, burnout did come along, and I was cooked for probably a couple of years really before I kind of got the chance to to wind back and. Um, it probably sneaks up on you, you know, like the burnout. You know, you, you you find yourself not as interested to be at, you know, with the horses or at the horse show and you're just sort of dragging yourself around because you know you've got to do it just to make everything add up. And, um, yeah, it just sort of you find yourself one day where you just go, oh, I just don't want to do this. I don't want to look at another horse. I don't want to look at another animal. Yeah, you just get to the point where you've got to have just a saturation point. But, but it, it works well for us. You know, we, we, we got ahead and we, we ended up buying a place down here in New South Wales and, um, and now we're able to, to step back from the horses now. We still, it probably took me 12 months to have a break from the horses enough to be interested in getting on one again. But um, yeah, it's worked really well. So John, what made you go, we cannot do this anymore? What made you realise you had severe burnout? Well, you both had severe burnout. Yeah, probably not long before it came good. It was it was it was at the time where um, we're, we're selling our places up at Kingaroy. We're looking to make a jump into New South Wales because you know Queensland, for whatever reason, the land markets, the way they've lifted and grown and so forth, they always seem to have find their lift first, and then New South Wales follows. 
Okay. And I don't know what, there's about a six or eight month gap, you know, and uh, so we saw an opportunity there where there was a, a way of having more for, for not really more effort, I guess, you know, just buying and selling into different markets. And um, so it wasn't until we were, we were selling those properties up there and in that space, that 12 months, that the, the cracks were really showing. And it was just fortunate that, you know, we, we managed to find a place down here that suited us and it was all amongst COVID and, and uh, so properties weren't hitting the market on auction because people couldn't get around. So there was a property there where we are that um, they preferred to sell privately and that suited us because we knew the rise was coming. But we um, we had to try and find a place before it got there. Otherwise, we would have just done a big sidestep and paid stamp duty for the sake of it and been no better off. So it was a pretty big gamble. But I guess, you know, with, with every risk, there's reward. Depending on the size of the risk is the size of the reward. So thankfully, it, it paid off. And, you know, we could sort of back off now. Whereas Tash, she doesn't have to, you know, work as a midwife five days a week or she's trying to do it six and seven because there was good good rates on weekends. And so she's she's been able to back off and I've been able to back off. And now we're just we're just doing the cattle and, and the horses that we um well, catch up on our own horses and um, do some competition horses. When you're first starting your business, you know, it's it's hard. It's hard going. You've got to put those long hours in and you've got to throw yourself into it 200%. But I reckon the burnout's worse because at the startup, you've got the passion, you've got the drive and you've got the vision. Definitely. The, the, the startup is easy because, you know, you're prepared to do whatever it takes. You've got the energy. You probably, you're in that space in your life where you have the energy. You, you're, you know, you're in your 20s. You know, you can bounce around and you, you can burn the candle at both ends of the stick and not be quite as effective. But when you hit that burnout, you're usually at a later stage where I was. I was, um, I was older. You know, you don't have the energy you did in your twenties, and you've got a, you've been there, you've done it so many times for so long that you've achieved some goals and they've been good, but they've come down to just thrills, they're little moments in time, and you just at the end of the day, you know, you can have a big win and then go home and then go back to doing the exact same thing again, but you're just damn tired, and you're looking for that, you're looking for that uh, light at the end of the tunnel just to get there a bit quicker. Because uh, when you start off, I guess, yeah, you, you've, you've got that light of the end told that you're sort of uh, aiming for. But, yeah, you haven't been through the, the grind, I suppose. It was difficult probably kicking off. It was very difficult because I didn't have the knowledge that I would have liked to try and train the horses. I did a lot of searching. You know, when I was riding the horses, I was, I was doing the best that I could. But you can never, you can never do the same job. You know, no matter how hard you work, as someone that's got the answers, you know, they can get on there. Do you can? I can get on a horse now. Get what I want done in in uh, twenty minutes across a, a a range of different things that I'm working on with that horse. Whereas in the past, I would have been an hour and a half, seven days a week, yeah, you know, and still didn't have what I wanted. So yeah, startup is difficult because you you don't have the means to get done what you want. But I guess youth and enthusiasm kind of, kind of can fill in the gaps. What about your career highlights? Throughout your career, what has been one of the biggest highlights for you? Uh, the first time I won Concurry, that was a major highlight because that was something I was always aiming for um, from the beginning. Chinchilla, Grandfather Clock, that was a big one for me. That was a bit euphoric. But look, I think after that, that were my two first major wins that I had that were very memorable. The other wins that I've probably had 
since then have been thrills, but I guess you realise that they're moments in time, I suppose, after a while. Probably my kids. <laughs> uh, but well, that's the way you said careers. I so did I say careers, so you're, you're not in trouble for that one. Yeah, yeah. John, what point did your career lift off? Did you feel like it was after the movie or after a certain win or just word by mouth? Um, I, I'm not really sure exactly when it was. It was probably when I started to get some better horses underneath me. There was probably two roads that came together where I was probably starting to gain enough knowledge to where I could be competitive. And uh, and the horses came, you know, together at the same time. Like you, you can have you can have all the knowledge in the world, but at the end of the day, it's still a horse race, and so you need that good horse underneath you. So you know, it was probably when the better horses started coming that my career started kicking off. So yeah, it came down to horsepower. So to the to the eighteen year old kid that says I want to make a living out of training horses or breaking horses, what would your advice be? I'd say, are you sure? <laughs> 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 what about to the eighteen-year-old John? Would you would you do it all again? If I went back and and um, had a chance to, you know, get in my own ear, I'll point out how important knowledge is. And it's not about just putting in the work; it's about gaining the knowledge. So make sure that you're chasing knowledge first and foremost, and the rest will follow. John, what drives you? Um, there's probably two things. You know, if we're talking about horse training, pursuit of a good horse um, because they're just fun. You know, like they're, they're just great. You never get sick of them. And probably the fear of failure. And that's probably what goes back to what I said earlier, you know, like it was a relief if I had a win or a big win that I'm not failing. So that was my biggest driver. That was when, you know, I'd get up in the morning and I'd be driving down to the to the arena to work the horses for the day and I just didn't want to go down because it was just – I was tired or sore or what, but you'd just push yourself to go through because you knew if you didn't, you will start to go down the, the road of failure. And so that's what kept me driving down to the arena. Did you ever have the desire to breed and train your own horses? Oh, yeah. That was a bit of a dream, really. I mean, it was something that I thought maybe I could achieve. I hoped that I could achieve, but... Um, as as I got further on, I realised that they didn't pay enough to get me ahead. But not like, I mean, you might have some horses that, you know, bring you a good check, but they were never going to pay the bills like riding other, everyone else's horses. So, you know, maybe, maybe we're coming to that season in our lives now where we can afford to, you know, breed a horse and, and not make quite as much on each horse like we would if we were just having, you know, an outside horse there with a the, with the check coming in each week. But um, That'd be something that I probably, um, I guess, would have liked, and still maybe get to to enjoy. You said you weren't very good at putting genetics together. Yeah, no. So I guess when it comes down to knowledge, you know, like um, early in the piece, I bred horses because they were um, somewhat well bred, but they missed some key elements in them that yeah you know, made them. Handy horses, but not great horses, and therefore were just sort of mixed in with everyone else's, I suppose, in the, the main group. So they weren't standouts. But yeah, that just came down to, I think, a knowledge. And I'm not saying I have it now, but I have a better understanding of what that is probably these days. So we did try to breed, and, and like I, I bought a horse of Tony Mortimer, eight on his ace, and he was an excellent horse. 
he was a great horse, but he probably wasn't a sire that I would have liked him to be because he never bred anything better than what mum was. You'd have to say he wasn't a sire. He was a great horse, but not a sire. But yeah, so I did try to breed and have a few of my um, few of my own horses on the side as I was training along, but they just they just didn't make the money that they needed to. Is it a matter of you've also got other people's horses that you have to train and ride and get to a certain point? So you didn't so much have the time to inject all that into your own horses as well? Oh, definitely there was an element of that. It was, there sure was an element of that. And I've got horses now that are, you know, five and six-year-old that have two-year-old program on them, and that's as far as I'll be able to get them. So, yeah, there was always that. Uh, I don't think that was a defining point in why my horses that I bred didn't work, but it was certainly something that um, could have been better. Yeah, in, in how those horses were sort of brought along as young ones. So how long have you been doing what you're doing, training, breaking? How long have you been in the industry? Four. Uh, I think I was 24 when I started. 40 now, so... So let's say 20 plus years. Close to 20 years. Yeah. 17, 18 years, yeah. So 20 years in the industry. Do you f- still feel like you've got anything to prove? Um... To myself more so, not to anyone else. Like I enjoy competing because it, it, you get to measure your, what you've been working on up against you know, other people and what they've been doing. And so that's really rewarding or, or telling. Um, but to myself, like, so I always wanted to be a horseman that was world-class and I don't know whether I'll ever get there, but that's what I'm aspiring to be. You know, someone that I guess, you know, whether it's, train a horse to dry work or to cut or to to camp draft. I would like to see myself one day to be able to go anywhere in the world and be refined enough as a horseman to match it with the best of them, I suppose. That's interesting. I'm so glad that we got an insight to John Templeton and I do thank you so very much for joining us and, and sharing your story and we wish you all the very best for your future endeavours. Oh, thanks, Carolyn. I hope it didn't come across too negative. Not at all. It's really good because you've put your hand up and said, I was terrible at breeding, like it didn't work. I actually felt like it was very real and that's a good thing. You were far from negative. Yeah, okay. Because I mean, I I guess there's been a lot of positives in the the time, but I suppose to talk about all the wins and all the great things is like, doesn't seem to have as much weight as the things that really test you, which are the negatives. Well, and we all learn from the testing moments and other people's testing moments. And that's what, you know, in a society where everything has to be so friggin' perfect now, we're looking for the real in stories. And and we want to know about the hard times because we all go through them. And when no one else talks about the hard times, we start to then go, well, is it just me? Yeah. Yeah. I can appreciate that. Yeah. Right on, mate. I'll leave you to it. And um, yeah, thank you. Thanks, Kate. Thanks to our sponsor, Hewitt Consulting and Communications.